Friends, please turn in your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. That's page 817 of the Bible underneath your seats if you don't have a Bible this morning. Uh, Friends, what we're about to do this morning at Redeeming Grace is the same thing we do every week here. I I or someone else opens up the Word of God to a particular passage of Scripture, and uh, we seek to explain it accurately and then apply it to our lives. And uh, we call this type of preaching expository or expositional preaching. You can hear that word expose in those words, can't you? Uh, It's preaching that seeks to expose both the content of the Scripture and the intent of the Scripture on its own terms. So rather than me picking a particular topic, and then finding scripture to back up that topic, we're trying to let the word of God set the agenda for each sermon. We want to communicate as best we can God's intentions for his word, since it's through the word of God that God gives life spiritually and blessing to his people. You know, most of the time that looks like us just walking straight through books of the Bible, like we are each uh, fall in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Last December, we left off just cut it right off at Matthew 12, 21. So this morning we're picking back up right where we left off in Matthew 12, 22. Uh, before we dive in this morning, let's just take a few minutes to reorient ourselves to Matthew. Friends, the Gospel of Matthew is a collection of Jesus' words and works written by Matthew. That's right, <laughs> former tax collector from Capernaum that Jesus had rescued from his sin, called to be one of his 12 disciples. Matthew likely wrote his account some 35 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. There seems to be one thing about Jesus' person and work that Matthew really wants us to see. Matthew's primary theme is that Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament. If you could boil down Matthew to one theme word. It would be the word fulfillment. Matthew wants us to see with 4K HD clarity that God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. What this amounts to is God establishing his his kingdom, his redemptive rule over his people through Jesus the King. We'll even see some of that fulfillment this morning in Matthew 12, 22 to 37. You know, you, you would think that someone this central to Israel's messianic hopes as Jesus, right, that he would have been received with widespread homage and worship. But no, instead, Jesus was met really with widespread rejection. And the ringleaders of Israel's rejection were her religious leaders, the ones who should have been most prepared because they knew the scripture the best, the ones who should have been most prepared to roll out the red carpet for the king, hated him. Their hearts were so calloused and cold in their pride and their legalistic traditions that they led Israel to spurn her only hope of salvation. So this morning, as we parachute back into Matthew 12, friends, the bullets of spiritual warfare are whizzing through the air, okay? At the beginning of Matthew uh, uh, chapter 12, the Pharisees, the, the sect of re- the Jewish religious leaders who thought themselves uh, the, the guardians of God's law, these Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the fourth commandment when he healed a man on the Sabbath day. Do you remember that? And of course, when Jesus declared himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, 
and greater than the temple that only poured gasoline on the fire of the Pharisees' hatred. Verse 14 says that the Pharisees conspired how to kill Jesus. But rather than engage them in open conflict, verse 15 says that Jesus withdrew from there and he healed yet others. He proved, Jesus did, that he was indeed the spirit-endowed Messiah that we read about this morning from Isaiah 42. He hadn't come to brawl. He did not come to quarrel, but to help the helpless, to rescue the downtrodden, the distressed, and to bring hope to the nations. So, but as we pick up this morning in Matthew 12, 22, it seems like the Pharisees are ready for round two of the fight, okay? And again, the, the controversy surrounds the significance of one of Jesus's miraculous deeds. Let's read, starting in Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house." Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of Matthew 12, 22 to 37, that I hope is the main idea of the sermon this morning, is this. Jesus proved that he's the Messiah by conquering Satan and the power of the Spirit. How will you respond to him? Jesus demonstrated, he answered definitively the people's question, can this be the son of David? Well, yes, indeed he is, because he conquered Satan in the power of the Spirit. But will we respond like the Pharisees and, and reject him in hard-hearted unbelief, or will we respond to him in faith? Two points this morning that cover the two sections of the text. Number one, the Satan-binding Messiah. The Satan-binding Messiah, we see this theme in verses 22 to 29. 
Number two, the spirit blaspheming mockers. Pick that up in verses 30 to 37. The Satan-binding Messiah, the spirit-blaspheming mockers. Friends, I don't always alliterate my sermon outline, but when I do, I alliterate every word. Amen? Friends, I pray that God's word would reveal to us this morning more of the glories of Jesus Christ and more of the accompanying danger of rejecting him. Let's look at these first few verses. The Satan-binding Messiah. Matthew gives a really super short narration of the miracle that serves as the context for the rest of the passage. Verse 22, Then a demon-impressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. Notice, friends, that the man's physical handicaps were a result of his spiritual bondage to the demons. That, that seems to be how it works. Remember the, the demoniacs of Matthew 8 in Gadara? They were known for their fits of violence. In chapter 17 here in a few weeks, we'll read of a, a demon-possessed boy who was given to seizures. The demons didn't just possess a person spiritually, they tormented them physically. Friends, I admit this entire topic of demon possession is a bit unsettling, isn't it? After all, we live in a modern, sophisticated, first world society, right? But we need to understand that the dark forces of the evil one are still at work in our world. And although uh, demonic possession may not be as obvious or as noticeable to us as it was then, we need to realize that we have, we have no reason to think that denom- the demonic possession is simply a thing of the past. Satan is at work in all kinds of ways, even today in our growingly secular culture. Friends, the people of Jesus' day had no trouble, no trouble accepting the reality of the demonic. They were not shocked by the demon's hold on this man. Rather, they were astonished at the power of the one who delivered him. Look at verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? The people pondered out loud whether this man with unparalleled authority to cast out demons with his mere word, could this man be the Messiah? Could he be the descendant of David promised in 2 Samuel 7 who would rule with a universal and unending kingdom? It should have been a slam dunk case, right? Why were the people so slow to understand Jesus' identity? Well, friend, I think it's for all Jesus' authoritative teaching and healing, he had zero, like no, nada, zero intention to liberate Israel politically from Rome. And that's what the people expected the Messiah to do. Jesus had not come to make Israel great again and to free them from the Romans. He had come to save his people from their sin. But maybe here in chapter 12, verse 23, maybe the people are coming around, right? Maybe the fact that they pondered out loud about Jesus' identity was proof that they were starting to see who he was. Well, according to verse 24, the Pharisees reacted quickly to stamp out that type of thinking. Friends, the Pharisees' hearts were so calcified in sin that they don't even pause to consider what they just witnessed, do they? They see the glory of God blaze before their eyes. And instead of falling on their face and worshiping this Christ, they blaspheme Him and they seek to destroy His credibility. 
Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Notice that Jesus' opponents did not question his power, right? They couldn't. How could they, right? The man whom everyone knew was dominated by the demons to the end that he couldn't see or talk, this man now had 20-20 vision, and he was talking up a storm. Friends, I think the Pharisees' response is a compelling case for the validity of Jesus' miracles. No one doubted that his works happened, not even his enemies. Well into the first centuries after Christ, historians wrote that Jesus did the works of sorcery, right? They weren't Christians, but they certainly didn't deny that Jesus did the miraculous, So friends, if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic about Jesus's miracles, why do you question 2,000 years later what Jesus's enemies did not question in the very moment that he did those works? Perhaps, friend, it's best to take the New Testament eyewitnesses like Matthew at their word that Jesus did what the Bible says he did and he was who he said he was. He's the Christ. Here's the thing. Supernatural power demands a supernatural source. Supernatural power demands a supernatural source. Since the Pharisees weren't prepared to admit that Jesus is empowered by God, that left them only one option, right? They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, you've probably heard of the ancient Canaanite god Baal or Baal. Beelzebul is a play on Baal. It literally means something like Baal, Lord of the house. The Pharisees were accusing Jesus of being animated by dark forces, being animated by Satan himself. The gist of their claim was that Jesus was demon-possessed when he healed the demon-possessed. Now, if that sounds utterly ridiculous to you, friends, that's because it is, right? Jesus shows just how absurd the Pharisees' accusation is in verses 25 to 26. Look at it with me. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, which, by the way, insinuates that Jesus is God. Only God is omniscient. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Jesus' logic penetrates right through their accusation, doesn't it? Everybody knows, it's like common knowledge, everybody knows that internal division within earthly kingdoms is fatal. Civil wars destroy nations from the inside out. No sane ruler does something to intentionally attack or weaken his own city or his own kingdom. No city or house divided against itself will stand. Friends, when, when Hadley, my daughter, was like five years old, we put her in, the, in a soccer league in, in Louisville for the first time. And, and as chaotic as, as soccer is at that age, where they just like the whole team follows the ball around like in a pack, you know, as chaotic as that is, even those five-year-olds knew you don't steal the ball from your teammate, right? You don't kick the ball and the other team's goal on purpose. Friends, the Pharisees' accusation was ludicrous on its face. Why would Satan kick the ball in the other team's goal? Why would he wage war on his own kingdom by expelling a demon from a man? It makes no sense. But friends, 
Unbelief in Christ seldom makes sense. So often, unbelief is illogical and irrational. Sin doesn't just twist our hearts, it warps our minds. For instance, people can look at the majestic grandeur and the intricate detail of this world and conclude that, well, it just must have come about through a a massive random explosion billions of years ago. People can look at modern 3D ultrasound technology that shows so clearly the little human being developing within the womb, and they can say, well, until the baby's viable to live outside the womb at 24 weeks, that's nothing but a clump of tissues. Or even worse nowadays, that the baby has no value until it's independent of its mother on the outside of the womb. In the name of personal expression and gender theory, people deny such plainly obvious biological distinctions between male and female that are understood by my two-year-old. Maybe these modern analogies help illuminate the blindness of those who had a front row seat to Jesus' mighty works, like freeing a man from demonic bondage, granting him sight and speech when he had none, and think, yep, that guy's an agent of Satan. Friends, just because an argument comes from intelligent people does not make that argument intelligent or cogent. Ironically, in claiming that Jesus did the works of Satan, the Pharisees proved that it was they who were in Satan's grasp. Jesus flips things around on them further in verse 27. Granting their premise for a moment, he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Historians tell us that exorcism in the first century was not uncommon even among the Jews and perhaps even among the Pharisees, if that's what Jesus meant by your sons here in this verse. But friends, there was a huge difference between Jesus' exorcisms and those by other exorcists in the first century, which were said to often include things like elaborate incantations and charms and even visual effects, like a magic show. So unique and authoritative were the exorcisms of Jesus that according to Matthew 9.33 that we looked at last year, the crowds marveled and said, never was anything like this seen in Israel. It was utterly unique. So Jesus is saying, if my superior power comes from Satan, what does that say about the inferior quality by which your sons cast out demons? By what power do they cast them out? Your own son's exorcisms condemn your logic, Pharisees. Well, in verse 28, Jesus transitions from defense to offense, okay? The transition fast break from defense to offense. Verse 28 is one of the most theologically important statements in the Gospel of Matthew, okay? But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now you say, John, why is that verse so theologically significant? Well, first of all, friends, this verse states with zero ambiguity the already not yet nature of the kingdom. Did you see that? The kingdom is not just something only in the future. God's kingdom has already come in Christ the King. The kingdom has come upon you, Jesus says. 
The second way this verse is theologically important is that it shows, friends, the tight connection between the Old Testament's expectation of the kingdom and the New Testament reality. Without getting too far in the weeds this morning, friends, you need to understand that the hope and expectation of the Old Testament prophets was that the age to come, the great age of salvation, would be an age marked by the Spirit of God. The last days, the days that mark the end of the age, the fulfillment of God's saving promises, those days would be a time when God's Spirit would come in full measure to bless God's people. So from the Spirit's role in making God's people new in the new covenant, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to Joel's prophecy that the Spirit of God would be poured out in the last days, friends, the Old Testament hope of salvation was tied explicitly to the activity of the Holy Spirit in salvation. One of the ways that the prophet spoke about the age to come is that the Messiah himself would be endowed by the Spirit in full measure. So this morning, Michelle read from Isaiah 42, the Lord says, behold my servant, I will put my Spirit upon him. And then he'll do things like open the eyes of the blind and bring prisoners out of the darkness. You can see that same idea in Isaiah 11.2, in case you're interested. Isaiah 61.1, the Messiah would come to save God's people and would do the works of the Spirit because he was indeed anointed by God's Spirit in, in full measure. So what does Jesus imply in verse 28? He implies that his casting out of the demons is not by Satan, but by the Spirit of God. And then, friends, then he makes a straight-line connection between this work done by the Spirit of God to the kingdom of God that he says has come upon them. He says that his casting out of the demon by the Spirit of God is proof that God's kingdom reign has broken into this world. Friend, isn't this just what we expect the Messiah King to do? Seriously, to be empowered by the Spirit and bring God's salvation and and enjoy or bring God's victory over Satan. Friends, we've known this was happening or this was supposed to happen from the earliest chapters of the Bible, right? Genesis 3, when God promised Adam and Eve that the offspring of the woman would one day crush the serpent's head. Jesus is saying that day has arrived. That day has arrived. The kingdom has come because the king is on the scene. Jesus explains further what he means in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Again, Jesus is playing offense here, friends. He's letting everyone know that what they just witnessed was not some little nifty exorcist technique. No, that exorcism was the sign of Jesus' comprehensive authority over the dominion of Satan. He pictures Satan like the tyrant with a castle dungeon full of captives. Jesus says, I am binding the tyrant and I'm plundering his goods. Satan may be the ruler of this world, John 12. He may be the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, and the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. But friends, when the Lord of glory shows up to reclaim his people from the evil one's grasp, there's nothing Satan can do. Turn back briefly to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, that's on page 610 of the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, I don't think verse 30 is merely a clever illustration from Jesus. I think it's an echo of Isaiah's ancient prophecy. 
Isaiah 49 is part of a larger section about this day of deliverance when Messiah comes. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24 of Isaiah 49. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? What's the implied answer there? No. No and no, right? If a mighty tyrant, a strong man, if you will, has captives bound in his castle, you're not getting them out. Unless it's God, the divine warrior, who's doing it. Okay? Look at verse 25. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Verse 26, that all flesh shall know that I am Yahweh, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. See what Jesus is saying by this strong man illustration about plundering the house of the strong man? He's saying this promise that Yahweh, the divine warrior, will plunder the house of the tyrant. It's coming to fruition through me. This is not a civil war from the inside of Satan's kingdom. This is a direct assault on Satan's kingdom from the outside. Your accusation, Pharisees, of me being in league with Satan is not only logically stupid, it's theologically upside down. I'm not aiding and abetting Satan. I've come to destroy him. Friends, do you see it? Jesus is casting out demons on this small scale in this one man's life. It's proof of what he came to do on the widest scale imaginable. Jesus came to unshackle the hearts of men and women, of boys and girls from the domination of their sin under the tyranny of the evil one. He came to transfer people, as Paul wrote, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. He came to bind the strong man, to plunder his goods. Adam failed to cast out the snake. Jesus came to crush him. The king of the new creation has arrived. So what does it mean practically? That's a lot of good theology, right? What does it mean practically that Jesus has bound Satan? What does it mean for you and me? Well, first of all, friends, it means the fact that that Jesus has bound Satan. It means that Satan cannot thwart the salvation of those whom God has determined to save. Satan cannot thwart the salvation of those whom God has determined to save. If God intends to rescue a captive out of the strong man's house, there's not a thing Satan can do about it. His hands are tied. Our family has been watching the Lord of the Rings. My kids for the first time, they're loving it. So we just finished the two towers. And in the two towers, there's this scene where Gandalf and Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, they walk into the citadel of Rohan. Do you remember that? And at Rohan, King Theoden is under the spell of Saruman. He's indwelt by evil. And I, I, I think I read the book a long time ago. Don't, if, you, if you're a purist, please forgive me. But as the, as the movie describes it, it's like, or portrays it, it's like Theoden's entire person is, is crusted over by the power of the spell. His eyes are, are empty. He looks like the dead among the living. You remember what happens, right? Gandalf walks forward with his, his wizard staff, and he says, too long have you sat in the shadows, Theoden king. And then he uses his power to break the spell and to set 
Theoden free. And in the, in the movie, in the moment that the spell breaks and, and Saruman's power dissipates, what, what happens? The darkness over this man lifts in an instant and Theoden's entire person changes. Life and vigor begin to course back into his body. And once again, he, he gripped his sword and he took up his reign as king. Friends, such is the reality of every image bearer set free from the tyranny of Satan. It's like coming back from the shadowlands into reality. It's like being set free from the darkness to walk in the light. By grace, we become kingdom citizens and begin to reign with Christ. If you've been united to Jesus by faith, this is your reality. The second thing the binding of Satan means is that Satan has no enduring claim on those whom Christ has rescued. So there's nothing that Satan do, can do to prevent the salvation of those whom God intends to save, and there's nothing, Satan has no enduring claim on those whom Jesus has rescued. If you're in Christ, the only real power that Satan had over you has been shattered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's just listen. Let's just let the words of Scripture wash over us this morning, okay? Colossians 2.15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ. That's union with Christ, with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to his cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Those are the demonic powers. Jesus put them to open shame. He disarmed them. He defanged them by triumphing, by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, friends, the only two things that Satan had, the only two weapons in his hands that he had to dominate our lives, they've been taken away from him. The guilt of our sins and the fear of death Jesus bore our sins on the cross and he conquered death in his death and resurrection so that united to him by faith, we have forgiveness and the hope of eternal life that Jesus won for us. That's what it means that Jesus bound Satan. You know, friends, there's no question that you and I can make the mistake of underestimating Satan. We can do that. We can discount him. We can think flippantly about Satan's tactics and the allure of sin that he sets before us in temptation. By all means, friends, let's guard ourselves against the temptations of the evil one by the word and spirit. But friends, it's entirely possible also to overestimate Satan. To think that he has the power to dominate us, even as Christians, that the devil just makes us do it, right? to think that we're still beholden to obey him and follow a life of sin, that the power of Satan is just too great for us to resist. We're on the other side of sin when we do fall to despair by the load of crushing guilt and shame that Satan heaps upon our conscience. 
Friends, don't fall on either side of the, of the, of the ditch. Don't underestimate Satan, but don't overestimate him either. Jesus has bound the strong man. If you've come to faith in Christ, he has delivered you from Satan's house. He's tied Satan's hands and you are free. Jesus has claimed you for himself and that means that he has, he has borne your eternal guilt and he has given you his spirit so that you might have both the desire and the ability to obey God. Friends, I'm not saying that when you become a Christian, all your bad habits, they just die, just like that. I'm not saying that every sin automatically loses its allure or its appeal, that every defeat automatically yields to victory. No, in many respects, friends, to become a Christian is to enter a war. It's to enter a war. Whereas once you had no desire to fight your sinful cravings, now you have a new Lord and new spiritual desires that, con that conflict daily with indwelling sin. Sanctification is a daily battle and it will be for the rest of our lives. It will be for the rest of our lives. But beloved, let's remember this morning in light of what we've just read, that although our sanctification is progressive, our growth in Christ is incremental, Christ's victory is not. He is the Satan-binding Messiah, and we are to live in light of his victory. Number two, the spirit-blaspheming mockers. Jesus continues his response to the Pharisees in verse 30. In verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In light of all that Jesus has said, this makes total sense, doesn't it? If there are indeed two kingdoms that are at war with one another, if Jesus is indeed the Spirit-anointed Messiah who's come to destroy the works of Satan, there's, there's no possibility of neutrality, right? There are no Switzerlands in this war, okay? You're, you're either with Jesus or you're against him. You either join him on his mission to gather the lost sheep in, or by default, you're on Team Satan. You're working to scatter the sheep. You say, John, that's offensive. I'm not a Satanist. I may not be a Christian, but I'm not a Satanist. I'm just indifferent. I'm agnostic. I just don't care. Well, friends, the claims of Christ's kingdom and the demands of Jesus are so exclusive that passivity toward Christ places you on the side of those who reject him. And it proves that you're more influenced by Satan than you can possibly imagine. There is no middle ground. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus warns us in light of this principle of non-neutrality toward him. Therefore, literally in the Greek, on account of this, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Here we have two of the more misunderstood verses in the entire New Testament, maybe the entire Bible. These verses have plagued the consciences of believers down through the ages. Maybe you're here this morning and your conscience has, has tormented you, wondering, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I committed this unforgivable, blasphemous sin against the Spirit that can't be forgiven? I had an abortion. 
is that the unforgivable sin? I had an affair. Is that the unpardonable sin? And perhaps you know someone who took their own life. You fear, fear that their self-harm was simply too blasphemous for God to forgive. Well, friends, without lessening the seriousness of any of those sins I just ticked off, none of them are what Jesus is talking about here. As always, context is king. In these thorny scripture passages, context must be our guide. And what's the context? What's the context? The Pharisees had just attributed the work of the Spirit of God through Jesus to Satan through Jesus. They blasphemed God's work through His Spirit. Their value system was utterly perverted. They called the one who was the essence of goodness and beauty, they called him sinister and demonic. So Jesus, friends, is not talking to Christians here. He's not even talking to the masses, the crowds. He didn't have such harsh words for the, for the crowds who questioned his identity. Surely there were unbelievers still in that crowd that day when they pondered, can this be the son of David? He didn't warn them like he's warning the Pharisees. No, Jesus is, is taking dead aim at the Pharisees' flagrant, persistent, willful rejection of him, a rejection so egregious that they attributed the Spirit's work to Satan himself. So, so what is the unforgivable or the unpardonable sin? What is it? Well, here's how I think we can define it. You may want to write this down. If you don't, I can email it to you. Okay, the unpardonable sin. The unforgivable sin is a deliberate and final choice to reject the Spirit's witness to Jesus and a settled conclusion that Jesus' person and work are demonic in origin. The unforgivable sin is a deliberate and final choice to reject the Spirit's witness to Jesus and a settled conclusion that Jesus' person and work are demonic in origin. Friends, I, I chose those descriptors carefully. The unpardonable sin is not accidental. Okay, it's, it's not an unchecked rise of anger against Jesus. It's not an unguarded slip of the tongue. It's deliberately repudiating the truth about Jesus in a way that is final and flagrant. You say, well, John, how do you discern if a, a person's unbelief is final, right? How can you tell if their attitude toward Christ is flagrant or hostile enough to be past the point of no return? Well, friends, I'm actually not sure that we can. We can discern such things flawlessly. Only God knows who's guilty of this unpardonable sin. It's impossible for a mere human to know with certainty what, that, a, that a fellow human has committed the unforgivable sin is thus beyond God's repent, or, or God, thus beyond repentance so that God might forgive him. You know how I know that? You know how I know what I just said? Think about the countless people throughout church history, throughout the ages, maybe some sitting right here in this room that once had an entrenched animosity toward Christ, but later through the miracle of the new birth, they repented and believed and they walked with Jesus for the rest of their lives. Jesus seems to describe such people in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. In other words, friends, there's a type of unbelief and rejection of Jesus even that is forgivable. 
if a person turns from their sin to embrace Christ by faith. Think of Peter. Would you call Peter's denial of Christ blasphemous? Right? I think so. Three times Peter denied Christ in, in Christ's hour of his greatest need. What about the Apostle Paul? Did he blaspheme Jesus? Well, let's just listen to Paul's own words in 1 Timothy 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So, so both Peter and Paul blasphemed Christ, yet both were forgiven. They repented, and, and they not only received Christ's mercy, friends, they were employed in Christ's service as leaders of the early church for decades. Friends, praise God for the truth at the beginning of verse 31. Let your eyes look at it. Praise God for the truth at the beginning of verse 31. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people who turn from their sin to find God's mercy in Christ. This is the best news that you and I could ever receive, that there remains forgiveness for the lazy and lusting and impatient and angry and worrying and self-harming and cheating and lying and proud and criticizing and backbiting and unfaithful men and women and boys and girls who repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone to forgive them. There is mercy. There's forgiveness. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is always, always more. Friends, what's clear is that the crux of the issue for those who've committed blasphemy against the Spirit is not God's inability to forgive, but their unwillingness to repent. Those who commit the unforgivable sin decisively reject Christ because they never repent. They continue to rebel against Jesus until the day they die. Instead of submitting to who Jesus is and recognizing that he was the Spirit-empowered Messiah and still is, not just was, he is, they declare him to be sinister and dangerous and even demonic. Well, before I make some application, I want us to see briefly that although our Bibles place a paragraph break between verses 32 and 33, verses 33 to 37 aren't some new unrelated section, okay? They're tightly connected to what Jesus has already said. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Friends, this proverbial statement applies both to Jesus and the Pharisees. In Jesus' case, he forces the Pharisees to make a choice about him. They need to declare that he's either a good tree of the Spirit that bears good fruit of the Spirit, or else he's a bad tree from Satan that's bearing bad trees from Satan. They cannot accuse him of being a bad tree that bears good fruit. Doesn't work like that. And what they decide about him will reveal what type of tree they are also. Verses 34 to 35, Jesus exposes, it's the Pharisees who are the rotten, demonic tree. You brood of vipers. If that's not satanic imagery, I don't know what is. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Friends, no one is going to be able to stand before God on judgment day and excuse themselves because it was their words only that blasphemed the spirit. Sticks and stones, Jesus. Come on, man. Wasn't that bad? No, words matter. The Pharisees' words expose their evil since the, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. Friends, your speech reveals what's in your heart. Good treasure comes out of a good heart, evil treasure out of an evil heart. Verses 36 and 37, as we wrap up our exposition, verses 36 and 37 may seem scary, but in the context, they make sense. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every, every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Friends, Jesus is not saying that there's going to be a playback video, kind of like, you know, the, the Judgment Day YouTube that plays back every stupid thing that you've ever said in your life. Rather, he's saying that God will judge those whose careless words blaspheme the Spirit. I think it's just another way of saying that if you harden yourself against Christ and your words expose your rejection of Him, those words will result in condemnation on the last day. So how do we apply all of this? Well, friends, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're trusting in Christ alone, His work on your behalf is your only hope of salvation, friends, you have no reason to fear that you've committed the unforgivable sin. None. Don't let it tie your heart up in knots. In fact, if you're, if you're worried that you've committed the, this sin, friends, your worry, your very worry is the evidence that you have not. Those who've committed the unpardonable sin don't give a rip, right? Their hearts are callous. They are impenetrable. They do not have a sensitive conscience at all toward Christ. So if you're worrying that you've committed, it's evidence that you haven't. However, just as much as I want to ease the conscience of many of you, I want to provoke the conscience of some of you. There are some here whose hearts are growingly numb to the Spirit of Christ. You sit under the sound of the gospel week after week. And instead of your heart growing more soft to the Spirit, friends, your, your heart is developing a callus over it from your repeated chafing at the gospel. Or maybe you're here and you're just a scoffer. You're past kind of the, the numb stage. You're just a scoffer. You're a mocker. You've gone public in your animosity toward Christ and his people. Friend, you need to hear this warning this morning, this warning about the blasphemy against the spirit. Friend, do not let the frostbite of sin make, your, make you blissfully unaware that your heart is freezing over and about to die. If you keep rejecting the Spirit of Christ, you may eventually find yourself past the point of repentance. Remember how I defined the unforgivable sin. It's a deliberate and final choice to reject the Spirit's witness to Jesus and a settled conclusion that Jesus' person and work are demonic in origin. God responds to that type of rebellion by hardening the rebel's heart. That's how it works. The sin is unforgivable because God never enables that person to repent and believe. 
So friend, if your heart this morning is unfeeling toward Christ or worse, if it's set against him in antagonism or active hatred, your heart at Jesus' words, you ought to respond with sobriety and a holy fear. Because there is a point that you could reach that would place you beyond the pale of forgiveness in this life or in the next. This is why Jesus came. He came to rescue sinners like you from the domain of darkness. He came to rescue, to reconcile sinners like you back to a right standing with the Father by forgiving your sin and transforming your life. Friend, Jesus lived the life of perfect obedience to the Father that you and me should have lived but didn't. Came miserably short. And then he died to pay the divine penalty for all the sins of those who would trust in him. And he rose to conquer death and hell forever. If you believe, if you repent and believe. So today, if you'll humble your heart before the Lord, if you'll agree with God, this is what repentance is, is agreeing with God about your sin, the severity of your sin and judgment. If you'll turn from your sin to Christ to save you, trusting in his work on your behalf, friends, God will forgive you, not through anything that you have done, but through the work of Christ. I'm going to close with the words of the crowd on that day so long ago. Can this be the son of David? Friends, praise God, it is he. Praise God that our king came and that he conquered. And today he's inviting all of us to live in light of his great victory. Let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, the Satan binder, the Satan crusher. Well, Father, we thank you that the horrors of our sin and the fear of death and the terrors of hell have been quenched by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus for his people. Oh Lord, help us to live in light of that great victory. Help us to, to not tremble before Satan, but tremble before the one who has the power to cast both Satan into hell and all those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Father, help us to rejoice today in light of your great victory. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to make progress in our sanctification because we realize that Christ has bound Satan's hands. He has no claim on us anymore. Well, Lord, help us not to feel like we have to shackle ourselves back to the sins of our old man. Oh, Lord, let us live in light of this new creation increasingly. Help us to put sin to death. Help us to be honest with you and with others. Help us to live together as a church in this way, to help each other live in light of what Christ has done. Lord, this is so much about what Christian discipleship is, helping one another live in light of what you have done, Lord Jesus. Help, help us to be that type of church. And then help those who are here and don't know you, Father. Oh, Lord, give them uh, a settled conviction of their sin. Lord, I pray that as they go home today, their conscience might uh, keep ringing, keep sounding the alarm. Don't let their conscience get so dull and, and numb that it no longer uh, 
bothers them when the gospel is proclaimed. Oh Lord, I pray that they might seek you, that they might uh, talk to someone they know in their lives who are Christians and, and get it settled, how they can be made right with you through Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that you would do a work among us in light of what Jesus has done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.